Want to know why a round piece of furniture might make you feel more relaxed than a square one? Have a listen. You're listening to Welcome Home to the Suburbs. Designing a new home to be your family's sanctuary can feel impossible during the stress of moving. In this podcast, interior designer Jill Kalman shares practical advice, design wisdom, and lifestyle tips for anyone moving to a new home. You'll learn all about the psychology of a well-designed home and how to survive the move and thrive in your new life. Say goodbye to overwhelm and hello to a home you love to come back to every single time. Here's your host, Jill Kalman. So today we're going to talk about the topic called neuroarchitecture. And neuroarchitecture is defined as the influence of the design of buildings on our central nervous system. And I'm a real big believer in the psychology of home and how it affects us, both our physical well-being and our mental well-being. And I came across this term neuroarchitecture and did a little more digging in it and connected with the guest who I'm going to have on today. His name is Frederick Marks. And I hope you find the topic as fascinating as I did and learn a lot from it. I'd like to just tell you a little bit about Frederick before we start our conversation. He is a visiting scholar and research collaborator at the Salk Institute for Biological Studies in La Jolla, California. He has been a licensed architect for over 25 years and has a planning and design specialty in healthcare and laboratory science facilities. He holds degrees in architecture and business administration with a major in real estate and urban land economics. Mr. Mark is a founding board member and president of the Academy of Neuroscience for Architecture in San Diego, California. He is a previous National American Institute of Architects Board Knowledge Committee member. He's a current advisor to the National AIA Research Summit and is president of his local AIA chapter. Mr. Marks currently is an advisor to the National Institute of Building Sciences and the John Hopkins University Medical Center Mind Brain Institute. As you can see, he's very well studied, but when you speak to him, you learn even more. He is just a wealth of information. So I really hope you enjoy this interview, and here we go. Hi, Frederick. I am so happy to have you on the podcast today. We are going to be talking about the subject of neuroarchitecture, and it's something that not just fascinates me, but I think it's really important, and I think that it's something people don't realize. So first of all, hello, and thank you for being here. Well, thank you, and hello to your listeners. Great. What I'd like to start off with is let's give, if you would, a definition of neuroarchitecture. Well, I can start out by saying it's not a verb. We cannot attack something in saying, I'm going to apply neuroarchitecture. But it is a distinct noun. There's also something called neuroaesthetics, which has to do with the arts. And sometimes architecture is thought to fit under neuroaesthetics that has a broader band. Mm-hmm. But basically, what we're talking about is that we will learn over time a great deal about our behavior where it's connected to the built environment, if we study the brain and mind. So we've connected neuro for neuroscience with the familiar term architecture. And we've said that by having this link, we'll appreciate much more about 
how we think and how we react in certain spaces. So is it true that our environment basically affects the neuropath of the brain, the neuropathways of the brain? It's true that no matter where we are at any time of day, we are affected by everything around us. And it not only applies to our brain, but our entire body. And that we need to appreciate that through the visual system, when we translate information that's before us, and there's a whole process involved in which how we're able to see takes place, that's affecting us in many different ways. It's not static. We move through space. It's a three-dimensional experience. And it's not just visual, but it takes into consideration all of our senses. Yeah, I was reading an article that said light, space, and room layouts have an effect on our physical, like you just mentioned, and our psychological well-being. Is it fair to say there is a connection then when you are at home, that scenario, there is a connection between your mind, your body, and your home? Oh, easily. We either feel invited Mm -hmm. to what's in front of us or we feel that it's hostile. Yeah, exactly. So... Let's talk to about, there's the physical structure, the building, right? And then there's the interior. So can you give an example maybe to the listeners of how something structural, whether, and I'm not sure if it'd be, you know, ceiling height, where the walls are, how many windows, whatever the example might be of the structure first, how that might affect us. Sure. and Either good or bad, by the way, either way, right? We do react very often differently to what we see on the outside, the the skin of the building, versus what we experience on on the inside. And the outside tends to be very public, and the inside, we hope, will be much more private. Mm -hmm. So how we feel about that space is going to change, because in our own mind, we feel we've entered something that is very much our own. And if you consider how that space is constructed, whether we're looking vertically or or horizontally, it does change depending upon whether there are penetrations called windows, whether it is a very high space or a low space. And there are tricks, and we've learned that through different architectural styles to have you project in certain manner. So in other words, if if the ceiling is low, but the space in front of us is very long, we're perceiving that differently than if it was a very small room, but had a very high ceiling. Yes. And is it is the perception different per person, meaning some people may respond positively and some negatively? Or is it more of a overall, well, when you have a low ceiling, it will make you feel like this? Right. Well, all all movement is dependent upon age, gender, experience, health. These factors need to be taken into consideration. So, for instance, one comes to a, a certain visual space with everything that they've experienced in the past. So it's not a matter of 
a new chapter in which you read it without knowing anything before. And therefore, if we're used to one thing and we see something different, that's one reaction. On the other hand, if it's the familiar, we may feel very comforted by that. Because we are creatures of habit, right? <laughs> well, we right? are. And then yeah. sometimes we're forced to change those habits. Yeah. And that, that may be both positive or it may be negative. Exactly. That's so, I find it just so fascinating and so interesting. And when you were talking about the skin of the building, is that something we could also refer to as curb appeal? Right? When you pull up to a house and there's curb appeal, would that sort of be the skin? Sure. And hopefully <laughs> that, that exists more often than not. <laughs> right. <laughs> Anyone who has an investment would like to think not only for their own peace of mind and enjoyment on an everyday basis, but also in terms of how they interface with everybody else. You want that home to be inviting. Right. It's how it greets you, right? Yes. Yeah. It's just like the clothes that we wear. We want someone to react in a positive manner to say, yes, you've done something for me and I want to interact with you. That's amazing. There's been a trend, as you probably know, toward open floor plan, especially in residential spaces. And lately, I'm kind of seeing some things trending back toward maybe not having that for two reasons. One is with the current pandemic, some people are feeling like we may need more rooms to close the door because we have everybody home. We have homeschooling going on. We have working going on. And the open floor plan might not be conducive to that. Even sometimes, and I'm an introvert myself, they say for people who are more introverted, you want a cozy place where you can close the door. I do think you could probably have both in a home, but there are some homes that are definitely you know, really open. Is there a difference in open floor plan versus not in how we feel? Mm -hmm. Clearly there is. And if you think about the evolution of, of closed versus open, it is primarily a function of what has occurred in the 20th century. Although <laughs> we should go back to the, the log cabin and realize that that was a one room space in which many different functions took place. But if we concentrate strictly on the 20th century, as we moved away, particularly from World War II and we were in the 1920s, there was a a great influence by the architect Frank Lloyd Wright, who your listeners may know. He introduced something called the Prairie Style, and that style tried to reflect what contemporary life was like at that point in time, that inventions were taking place to make lifestyle much more easy. Uh, we had electricity, so light was available both day and night. The kitchen was becoming much more usable, and it was his personal point of view that someone working in the kitchen should be able to observe much more than just the food that was on the table, but what the husband was doing and what the children were doing or vice versa, whether the husband was cooking, the same same kind of observation goals. So the the space opened up. And it not only opened up to other rooms, but allowed you to see well beyond the window and the views beyond. 
yeah, his philosophy had a huge impact on, I think, that open floor plan concept. Yes. And it, yeah, I mean, it changed over time. And in fact, as you began to, to hint over the last, let's say, 20 years, the idea that, that we should be able to see everything has been a feature. And I think for most practical reasons, it's been good and, and people have, have felt comfort in that. But something has also been lost. And you began to talk about the fact that we need private space. We like intimacy. That's very comforting. And we have different personalities. Sometimes we're an extrovert and sometimes we're an introvert. And it's important for someone to be able to find the common term cave, whether it be a man's cave or a woman's cave or a child's cave, so that they can be on their own and explore things that are important to them within that house setting. Yeah, it does seem that we need that because, you know, going back years and years, you always hear kind of the old cliche of, you know, I like the smallest room in the house. You know, here we may have this big house or these grand rooms, and it's always that smallest room you feel so cozy in, right? There's something almost just about our human need that might need that. I don't know, but it is interesting to explore that. And yeah, we do need places where we maybe meditate or yoga or read or study or work or, you know, now that everybody is home, everybody just needs a little personal time out Mm -hmm. from each other, you know? Yeah. There's a, a psychological hypothesis, uh, this goes back a number of decades, called refuge and prospect. And it applies to how we feel man who was in the forest thousands of years ago had to operate, meaning that they felt safe within the closed environment of, of the forest, but they were able to look out far into the distance to make sure that anything that may be a cause for danger would be observed quickly and allow them enough time to get away safely. And we still want that comfort of being in a closed, safe environment, but then also able to look out and observe. Yeah, I do think, I mean, so many things go back to these very primitive needs that we started off with you know, flight or flight, that whole thing. And so, yeah, that's so interesting to look at it that way and recognize that and recognize that that's important in your living space and your home space to have that, to feel nurtured and to feel safe. Is there anything you think people should look for as in the structure of the home when they're purchasing? Anything that stands out to you that when they are looking for a new home, and there are a lot of people, my listeners who are leaving big cities right now, looking at new homes in the suburbs, anything on an architectural or structural basis that might help them in their search? Sure. There's a term I remember from long ago, and someone said, a home needs to have good bones. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my dad always taught me that. <laughs> right. You know, I mean, what does that mean? You, you want something that gives you a certain form and proportion that works for many different opportunities. And You know, I was thinking about the fact that the home in many ways has not changed very much since the classics in terms of Rome and and Greece. And Pompeii is a very interesting trip. I would advise everyone who who has a chance to, to go to Italy 
to spend time there. And there is a typical house type, I must say it was perhaps only available to the upper middle class, but still it has given us a template all these years. It was referred to with that Latin term domus, and it had a series of atriums, and it allowed one to greet people from the street in a public area, and then it left the private zone for the family towards the back. But it always enjoyed this courtyard where sun could penetrate through and natural air would circulate and living plants would be allowed to grow. But then it also had the the covered spaces, which were needed for practical reasons. And that's carried over in most cases. So we should be looking for that domus whenever we look for a new home. Yeah, I think that's a great point. So you have your public areas, your outdoor, and you have your private areas. Yeah, no, I think that's an excellent tip for some people. How do you think soft surroundings or interiors affect us? Now we move from the outside to the inside. And as far as what's within the walls, the furniture, the carpet, whether there's art on the wall, what sort of effects does that have on us? Well, I mentioned the five senses earlier. And we tend to focus on visual perception. And there's a good reason for that, because it tends to dominate uh, as far as the five senses. But we forget that the other senses are still working, and we're not emphasizing it enough. So whether that's smell, or touch, or hearing something, That applies to how we feel in that space, whether we're conscious of it or it's an unconscious experience. There are many different aspects of brain-mind thesis. Uh, Particularly in the 20th century, we, we studied things like gestalt and psychophysics, and we came up with terms like affordances and embodiment and we don't have enough time to, to go into that in detail, but basically it's the psychology of what it is that we feel when we're surrounded by walls and furniture and we're affected by variables like light and darkness. How does the body react? Because we're always moving through it. This is not a static experience like opening up a magazine and looking at a photograph of a of a house of a still shot yeah. yeah this is happening in real time and the body does certain things which actually is to our benefit as we do move through that space yeah so all our senses are picking up on everything as we're moving through oh, clearly and, and living through and yeah and everything yep, yep. i thought about pop-ups which have become a a fad. And usually one goes to a a retail space off the street to experience something that you would have had to beforehand, you know, go to an amusement park. And this is, it's a small space and it's fixed up in many different personalities, but we can create our own pop-ups at home. Yeah, that's, I love that. I love that. Yeah. 
Because it's true when you go out into a space like that, you're looking for some stimulus, aren't you? Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah. And so that probably, whether it's the endorphins in the brain that light up from that, I don't, you can tell me, but maybe that, you know, it's the dopamine and the endorphins that it triggers. Well, we are trying to trigger or activate neurons all the time. And there are a hundred million neurons that we're working with. So there's an awful lot of activation that can happen. And that's exactly what we're trying to study. Yeah, that's cool. So conversely, if your surroundings on the interior were left unfurnished, and one challenge of my audience is that, you know, it's a big transition from the city to the suburb, and they're going from a much smaller amount of square footage, typically, to many more rooms to fill. And part of the challenge is, for whatever reason, furnishing it gets sort of pushed down on the priority list. And I'm trying to sort of inspire and teach people that it's really important that you don't neglect that. Because to me, I feel just in general terms, and and I'll let you expand on this, but if you leave rooms empty or you leave rooms partially furnished where you can't fully perform function in it that you want to, whether it's a family room, a, a study, whatever, there's a void there. And I don't know from your perspective with neuroarchitecture if that is also true. Well, there's a difference between a void where there was neglect. In other words, you didn't have enough money to buy the furniture that you wanted, so you just stopped. Right. Versus minimalism. And there's a difference between Western thought and Eastern thought in terms of space. Eastern thought is much more inclined to accept that there is a border And then you fill the space in between with your personal feelings. And that space, like a Japanese garden, can expand to enormous scale, as in one looking at a series of rock forms, but imagining them as mountainscapes. So we shouldn't be frightened by the fact that we don't have a lot to put in something in the form of a room. But it's more about the arrangement. Now, Western thought takes the attitude that we should just fill everything up. And I think one should accept that it's a happy medium. And again, it applies to what experience you bring to that room, the culture that you've been brought up in, what is it that you're trying to do from a functional point of view within that room, and will that make you feel satisfied? Right. Well, sometimes the issue is the first thought is I don't have the money, but it's really not about that they don't have the money. They haven't planned or prioritized with the money. So let's say, for example, they need to have a home office and they've just put in maybe some leftover furniture from their apartment that's not comfortable, but now they're working from home day in and day out. That may need to change. Or if there is a family room that you gather to watch a movie or play games, to me, fabric needs to feel soft. Things need to feel comfortable. Someone might need to take a nap in there. So if you've neglected those areas, I'm not just suggesting to fill the room to fill the room, but to actually design your spaces for your lifestyle and you don't do that. I mean, there are some clients that leave half the house empty. And to me, it's like, well, why have the square footage? Because if it's empty and they're not going in there for something spiritual, like being in a Japanese garden or meditation. 
Do you know what I'm trying to say? It almost now teeters on a line of wasteful, right? I mean, in that there's rooms not being even entered. Right. I have a good friend who is of means, and he used to say to me, we can only be in one room at a time, <laughs> right? So yeah. no matter how big or small, we need to observe that fact and make the most of that room as we have an opportunity. So if we're trying to inspire those people who have, have bought a larger home outside of the urban city, again, I go back to what is it that you want to experience in that room? Who is it for? We mentioned the terms public and private, so that makes a difference. We mentioned the fact that people will be of different age and gender and health. We haven't really gotten into the other perceptual conditions, and that is, what are you trying to achieve visually? Is there something that you'd like someone to focus on? And therefore, that can take up a lot of space so that it becomes more important, such as a painting or a rug or just one piece of furniture that is beautifully designed and you want nothing to compete with it. Yes, it's almost like having a piece of sculpture when that happens. Exactly. You know? Yeah. And that can please the eye and create stimulus, as we just talked about. So, yeah, I guess my point is just filling those holes, not leaving them empty too long, because the point of your home, especially now where we are home more, is you want to be able to function in it. So, you want, as you talk through moving through spaces, we may have to be cooking in the kitchen, but then hopping over to the dining room to help somebody with some homework right? To then in the evening, piling in the family room to watch some Netflix or something. So that's right. Even though we only are in one room at a time, there's multiple rooms we're using for various uses. So that's all I wanted to say. So the other thing to talk about, and you and I had a brief conversation about this, and I, and I thought your take on it was interesting, was about remodels. So sometimes too, they're buying these homes and there are some remodel, whether it be small or large, that needs to be done. Sometimes the homes are older or just haven't been updated the way maybe the new family would like them to. So then we get in the whole thing of going beyond decorating and we're remodeling. And I thought you had an interesting take on it. So I just wanted you to briefly talk about remodels if you wouldn't mind. Right. I'll start on that. And then I thought of one other item. Okay. What we often need to deal with in remodeling, because it's, it's typically not a one-person decision is to accept that we will come to the table with different points of view. And whether it's a marriage or it's the relationship of, of parents to children, or if they have an elderly parent who will be living with them, everyone may have a different idea about how change should take place. And we don't want that experience to be disruptive because once we make those decisions, they become very physical implications. And we want everyone to agree, even if it's a compromised position, that this is something that's going to work for all of us. And there have been many cases by the, the end of the exercise that a couple may do with an architect that they're ready for divorce or they've just decided to give one person the house and the other person is moving to, to some place somewhat distant. Right. So it tests our interpersonal relationships, well, that process, clearly, doesn't it? What, what comes out 
and this is important for the mind and brain, is that we do have passions in certain directions. And we're, we're asked to say, what is it about this home of ours that we want to, to leave an impression, both for ourselves when we enter it every day and for anyone who comes to visit us? It's a personal stamp. And not everyone is going to have the, the same inclination as to what that stamp is going to, to actually look like. And so we have to somehow come to terms with the fact that we are, are different. We come with experiences that the other person may not have shared. But on the other hand, it's an exciting exercise because it could lead towards a binding of, of personalities. And it can say, this is something that we're doing together and we'll experience together. And that's something that never existed in the past. So we need to use it as a positive instrument as opposed to a negative one. The other thing I, I was considering, which has something to do with what we're saying, some listeners may know the name Frank Gehry as yeah. an architect. Much of his work is known in terms of public institutional space, like Disney Hall in, in Los Angeles or the museum that he did for the Guggenheim in Balboa. Spain. But he did a home for himself in Santa Monica in Southern California, finished in 1977. And he took a typical uh, gambled roof Dutch colonial bungalow, didn't have much personality other than the fact that there were many of them both nearby and all over Southern California. And he said, I need to remodel this. Do I basically concentrate on the interior or possibly do I wrap it with something that is important to me as an experiment on the outside? And that's exactly what he did. And he took materials that were common basically to the street that one knew through the aerospace industry and he was a flyer of planes, so he had a passion for that. And he, he used corrugated aluminum and wood frame skylights. And, and he did something that no one had ever seen before. But it had an impact on the interior as well. And he had a deep concern for understanding psychology. And yeah. every time he walked into that space, he admitted, it made me think about things that I hadn't thought about the day before. So remodeling gives us a chance to do something that is special. And we should always keep that in mind. Yes. And my role as a designer is I'm oftentimes a moderator. So sometimes maybe overall the husband and wife see relatively eye to eye, but there's some sticking points. And really I come in to come up with the compromise because there always is one. And so I try to say, we can kind of mix what he's saying with what you're saying. And here's, and I try to present here's something that might please both of you, you know, and it works. And then sometimes I found some people say, well, okay, I'm going to let him or her have their way on that one. And then I get to pick this part. And for some couples that works. And what you are right about is that in the end, with the finished product, they feel, they feel really happy. And I think it's nice that the, result is a collaboration of everybody's opinion and everybody's feeling because 
it is all of their space, like you said, whether it's a mother-in-law living at home, whoever's living in the house. And so it is positive, but yeah, it could be a struggle and it is where personalities do seem to get tested. And I have known, or I have realized rather that whether you're home buying, moving into a home, decorating a home, building a home, remodeling a home, it seems to be a very emotional, passionate experience. And even though a lot of it is a business transaction, it is very different from other business transactions. There's a lot of emotion and passion behind it. I've seen it like on all levels. And I've even noticed it with myself. Like when we were hunt, house hunting, it felt like a very passionate thing. Like if if we found a house we loved, you just, you know, you want to get that house. Is our bid going to be accepted? And I think it's because it's an intimate space for us to live. Oh, yes. It's definitely a trying experience. It's one that people don't go through many times, unless you're a professional and you're flipping homes. Yeah. So it's just the fact that you are dealing with a lot of other professionals who you don't necessarily know very well, who are handling your personal affairs, that you're moving in many cases, into a home that someone else has occupied. <laughs> and in the days of the coronavirus, that's something we're all thinking about. What is it that I'm going to experience based on the fact that there was this other group there? That it is, yes, an enormous financial burden uh, that I think in the case of almost everyone is not going to go away after you move in, but this is a long-term investment and that you're thinking already, even before you move in, what happens if I have to pull out? And will someone else appreciate the space as I'm appreciating it now? So all of those things are going on at the same time. It's a lot of layers. And like you said, it's a lot of reliance on a lot of people that you may not know that well. And you're trying to... So yeah. That's why it's important to find someone you're comfortable with and, and work with them to fit your needs for sure. One thing I wanted to discuss was color and mood. You can read endlessly about it and green does this and blue does that. And in neuroarchitecture, how do you, do you study color and mood and how that role affects us? Well, the color theory has been around for quite some time and, and we should appreciate that the industry, you know, those who actually manufacture paint color have teams of researchers that look at pigment and study the effect of one color against another color. And there's a lot of research on how one perceives color either in terms of how it meets or what we say the edge effect or how color stands alone. And then you've had artists who have spent their entire careers studying painting. And we can go back to some of the the artists that we love so much of the 19th century, such as Matisse, and well into the 20th century. And Joseph Albers spent a career with his homage to the square, looking at the effects that one color would have on top of another, and that if you just displace it slightly, you read it differently. And that kind of effect 
can also take place within the house. But I can mention that there have been animal studies where one has evaluated this color effect. And we know that, at least in, in working with primates, that there is a change in, in attention span depending upon what color is put before us and that there are clusters of cells that respond more appropriately to maybe a red or green or blue versus a yellow. In other words, the amount of attention that we'll give to one color versus another changes. Yeah, very interesting. I take color into account, like when I was painting my studio office, you know, I have to look at color all the time when paint swatches and fabrics and wallpaper for people and put schemes together. The room I have has a lot of natural light, which is really good because that really helps me see the color more truly. Right. But I also made sure that I painted the walls very neutral and light. And then the work table I got to look at color against, whether it be tile or whatever, is just sort of a muted gray, just very neutral, so that I'm trying to see it as purely as I can. But yeah, depending on the function of the room and, you know, like a bedroom needs to be restful, right? So sometimes they say blues do that for us. And that's the whole color theory. But yeah, I was curious from neuroarchitecture, the standpoint of it. So that's very interesting. There's something called familiarity and novelty Mm -hmm. in psychology. And we don't want too much novelty because that can be overpowering and, and disruptive. But it's important to have some of it. So for instance, if we think about a room and we use neutral colors, Mm-hmm. But then we have a rug or a piece of furniture that has a bright color and draws attention to it. But it's something that we find very pleasing because it gives a certain personality to that space. That's a balance that we should try and achieve. And color, regardless of where it goes, whether it's a fixed surface or it's, it's on a lamp, that's above our head, it has to work within the context of everything else. Yes. And the key word that you said is balance. And we talk about that all the time in design. And you're right. You know, certainly there is a place for a monochromatic room, but yes, if you have a lot of neutral, pop the color in the rug, pop the color with some throw pillows and accessories. And balance also works as far as shape, a perfectly square dining room, really might call for a round table with curves, which leads me to the next thing I'm getting into, which I read, and you can tell me if this is true, that curved furniture lends itself to more brain activity than boxy furniture. It represents relaxation. And the article went on to say that part of it has to do with your peripheral vision. So it's a part of the brain that They gave the example, if you were walking down a tunnel and it was narrow and it was lined with rocks, almost like a cave, right? You wouldn't really think about much else except avoiding the rocks and not getting scraped or hurt. But if you went through that same tunnel and it was curved and upholstered, you would sort of daydream right through it. So with furniture, and again, it's about balance. So you you wouldn't read this article and then put all curved furniture in your house because I believe you need the juxtaposition of straight line with curve. But 
Is there anything that in neuroarchitecture you guys have found as far as curved furniture versus straight? Well, one can refer to the fact that in terms of primitive man, we were concerned with sharp objects and edges because it may be dangerous. So we have a tendency to appreciate a curved surface. And quite frankly, in nature, we have plenty of examples of that existing. So it's very natural for us to appreciate it as, as well. And you mentioned that we probably can't have all curved furniture for practical reasons, and, and that would be true of a, of a floor plan. I can remember a facility manager for a very high-profile office building saying that the furniture arrangement was extremely difficult because all the walls were curved. There are reasons why we live in more of a geometric Cartesian space as opposed to a round space. But that said, we do know through research that we have a certain amount of positive expression when something is rounded. And and that can be a detail, whether you look at a couch and have the armrest that is curved, the couch itself doesn't necessarily have to be curved. So it's a matter of details. Well, and here's a funny example. We have in our family room a very perpendicular L-shaped sofa, sectional. Uh-huh. And I have in front of it a rectangular coffee table. Mm-hmm. And I recently bought a new chair for the room that's round and curved. It swivels. And two things. One is it changed the whole feel and look of the space. And everyone gravitates to that chair now. Now, this the sofa we have in the room, everyone loves it. It's a real napping sofa. It's a real hangout on it. You're really comfortable sofa. Everyone loves the sofa. But with the new chair in the room, and it is curved, and it is great, everyone wants to sit in that chair. It's the favorite place to sit. But aesthetically, too, when I look into the room, because where it's placed, I can see it from the next room through the doorway, something has completely changed even about the look of the room that's made me feel different. So it's really interesting. Well, we shouldn't forget when we look at our own body, mm-hmm. that it's all made up of curves, yeah. right? Well, yes. Eyes, ears, <laughs> I can, I can attest. fingers, and so on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so anyway, this has been a great discussion. What I want to end with is, um, well, two things. One is, if in a couple sentences you're able to maybe tell our listeners maybe the biggest way that neuroarchitecture and sort of the psychology of us, the physical and and psychological aspects of the human experience in our homes. What do you think is the biggest impact neuroarchitecture has on that? If you want to leave just with a couple thoughts overall. The most important thing, and I, I may have said this very early on, is that we're trying to learn how people behave in and out of buildings. So it can be an urban scale or it can be a a very small, intimate space, and then how those buildings change and shape our behavior. So we want to learn more about how do we trigger joy and pleasure, but at the same time, how do we mitigate loneliness and stress? I mean, that if that's not equally important, it's perhaps even more important because we want to- Yeah, it's paramount. 
decompress when we get home. We want to stimulate creativity, innovation, diversity. There's a a friend of mine, and I wrote a, a short book review for something that was just published last year called My Creative Space by Donald Ratner. Um, and it's it's basically saying there's so much potential in the house that we can bring to it by just doing certain things that will stimulate our mind and in turn will stimulate the ability to be creative. And I think that's what understanding the mind and brain will help us to do in the future, much more than we can do today. I mean, ultimately, it's tied to our well-being. It just is. So, you know, that really, I think, is one of the bigger takeaways in the simplest terms anyway. So I loved having you here. I could talk to you for hours. I find the whole topic fascinating. I I really believe in the psychology of home as part of my whole philosophy. And so I wanted to bring this discussion to to my listeners and I hope this inspired them and they learned something from it. I'd love to just close the show by not only thanking you, but you can certainly let listeners know if there's a website or any platforms they can find you on to learn more or any books or anything you recommend. But I'll turn the floor over to you to, to do that. Sure. There's a organization that I'm now president of. It's a nonprofit group made up of scientists and designers called the Academy of Neuroscience for Architecture. You can Google that, but you can also type in anfarch.org, and it will get you there immediately. And since 2003, we've been studying the very things that we talked about today and more. There's lots of information on the website. There's a community of people interested in this subject all around the world. And I invite people to think more about this idea about mind and brain and get the most out of the home that they're considering or living in at the moment. Yeah, no, I think that's great advice. And again, I thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you. So I could talk to Frederick for hours. I could talk about this topic for hours. I just find it fascinating. I find it interesting. I find it really important. I feel like it's something a lot of us don't think about and don't connect the dots with. The amount of information that he gave us today I think is great. I hope it inspires you and you learn from it. My one great takeaway, I love the quote when he said, bring the pop-up to your home. I mean, what a great thing, right? And how interesting is it also that really a lot of our needs and a lot of the connections that we have to things really go back to kind of how we're coded and how primal we really are. So much goes back to that. And I find it fascinating. So I hope you might have a little bit better understanding why you're more attracted to that curved piece of furniture in your home than the square one. To celebrate the launch of this show, I am going to be giving away some great prizes to four lucky winners. One winner is going to get a pair of AirPod Pros, and the other three winners are going to get a $100 gift card to either Serena and Lily, Restoration Hardware, or Amazon.com. You get to choose. So three lucky listeners who subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes will receive these. It doesn't have to be a five-star review, although I sure hope you do love this show. I want your feedback so I can create an awesome show that provides tons of value to you. So visit 
jillcalmaninteriors.com slash podcast launch to learn more about the contest and how to enter. I'll be announcing the winners on the show in an upcoming episode. From my home to yours, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Welcome Home to the Suburbs. Head over to jillcalmaninteriors.com to learn more about designing a beautiful new home while minimizing the stress of moving. See you back here next week.